My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of the programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, we're joined on today's programme by Robert Pye, the co-founder of Ethos VO Limited, a network of social entrepreneurs and innovators who solve complex problems through forming businesses which seek to form positive social, environmental and economic outcomes. Um, Robert, very warm welcome to you today. And by all means, thank you for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, happy to have you alongside me as well, Robert. Um, now, I've only provided sort of a rough outline of what it is that um, Ethos essentially seeks to do, but just for those listeners tuning in that might not be familiar with you and the organisation, um, what is it that you sort of specialise in in your own words, please? We're, we're a social enterprise, mm. um, which means that, you know, we're, we're very mission-focused, and the mission is really simple. It's about Make, you know, helping the world become more people and planet focused. Um, my, my story of how I came to that, you know, really briefly, uh, going back 22 years when I was a management consultant in EY, um, and we were involved in lots of mega engagements with big organizations, but the further I went up the tree, the more it became about the interests of the organization and bureaucracy and power mm. and politics, and less about people, less about the problems that we really wanted to, to solve that were community-oriented or planet-oriented. Um, so that, that has really defined me for the last 22 years, the last 15 years. Uh, Ethos has been at the top of the radar um, in terms of running an organization that can experiment with projects that are about people's well-being or about the environment. And so it's quite an aggressive form of experimentation where we try, we fail, we try, we learn, you know, and occasionally we get some stuff right. So there's some quite interesting projects that we've incubated, launched, spawned, you know, out of, out of the work that we've done. So it seems very much um, about the purpose rather than sort of the gain from the organisation and something that's sort of quite unique about sort of uh, ethos as well that I've noticed is you don't sort of have sort of standard office space or any kind of standard business hierarchy. So that's just another thing which is sort of very different about you and uh, what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, we when we started conceiving, you know, how we might put things together, you know, organisational collaboration or people... We started with a, um, a blank sheet of paper, um, and you know the the experiment of maybe why we shouldn't do a hierarchy it was was born out through um, just getting out of people's way. You know, not trying to manage people through predefined boxes, roles, but setting them free to do what they wanted to do with with a need for money, a need for um, structure, a need for outcomes, but not necessarily through hierarchy and roles. And that, that's probably been one of the most fascinating parts of the bigger experiment, um, which has involved hundreds of people over the years, 
Um, and I think it's something that we'll continue to live with. It's not about abolishing hierarchy. Mm. It's not, but it is about setting people free. Yeah, absolutely right. And just going um, on to sort of the the social, environmental and kind of economic um, underlying purposes behind um, Ethos and some of the businesses that you're sort of working with, let's say, um, have you sort of seen a real kind of heightened awareness toward the need for things like corporate social responsibility, particularly in the last couple of years since the pandemic, when it appears that more and more people are cottoning on to things like the climate crisis and things like their impact on the planet and the need for businesses to sort of act in a more sustainable way? It's a fascinating question. And, and the one word answer is, is a massive yes. And I think I think this is about reframing uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility, mm. ESG, environmental, social, and governance, in a way that is um, not about what some people might glibly call greenwashing. Mm. Um, as an example, for government, some teeth on that that the government have built up more the Social Value Act, which requires anybody that's bidding for government money to put um, serious effort into a plan for what they're going to do ESG going forward. And it, that's led big companies to set up big teams that are focused purely on what their plan is going to be social and environmental you know, going forward. So, so we're starting to see teeth led by government, and that's good. That's an example of good government intervention. But it, it's still a tiny amount of where the focus really needs to be. And it's not mm. just that we are killing each other and burning the world at an increasingly depressing rate. It's that the shareholder value, the economic returns for corporations are being imperiled by the fact that employees are finding it more difficult to engage customers, communities, and the landscape that once was a pretty environment to fish in, mm. in terms of the commons of, um, or the blue commons or the world that we live in, it is not as easy to operate in because of complexities. So from a business industry point of view, businesses are finding it really hard to just take the assumption that actually all I do is make profit, but it, that's no longer enough. You know, I need employee engagement, I need environmental, I need stakeholder, I need the communities to make sure that they don't protest when I'm trying to build you know, new apartments, etc. Yeah. So I, I think it's a massive yes to that question. And I suppose a part of that as well is consciousness of changing consumer habits as well, isn't it? Because people are becoming far more aware about their sort of personal spending choices and they're looking more into well, if I'm going to buy a particular product from a particular business, what is this business standing for? I mean, are these products sourced sustainably? What are its policies on corporate social responsibility, ESG, as you've talked about? And people are becoming far more sort of attuned to that, aren't they? And so if you, as a business leader, aren't sort of moving with the times on that, you're going to find that you're going to be losing out in terms of clientele as well, aren't you? Yes, and I think the complexity... And we, we could talk about an experiment we did over the pandemic where we we hired 65 young people who were a long way from the labour market, mm -hmm. um, 
marked by DWP as at risk of long-term unemployment. That it's a roundabout way of coming to your point in terms of consumer choice. That in order to be able to make intelligent choices, you need to not be desperate. And we know that in the uh, in the world currently, there are supply chain crises. There mm. are food security problems. There are energy problems. And if you listeners have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're starving, it's very difficult to make informed choices. Um, therefore, how do you get out of people's way of what I've said before? Part of that may be that some people need a roof over their head and mm. money to buy food to put on the table and not a desperation of, well, you need a job, you've got to get a job, you've got to fight and win for um, uh, a, a sort of winner-takes-all position in order to put food on the table. Is it a human right? Is it? Is it not? And, and I think that there's a lot of issues about uh, how we might package food, make the supply chain behind food much more visible for consumers to make choice. But consumers also need to be empowered to make choice. And part of that is money. So the experiment we ran over the pandemic, which was a heartfelt experiment where no young people either coming out of university or entering the job market could get a job anywhere, even in retail hospitality. So mm. we we employed these 65 people, some of our own money, some using DWP's kickstart money, without a job definition to do something we call value exchange. It's basically to listen to the young person and say, who are you? What would you like to do? Uh, career in music, I'd like to do some design work, I'd, I'd like to work in business, but I don't know anything about that. And then get businesses, businesses like Google, you know, et cetera, to come on to an online work platform, 50 or 50 businesses, quite big ones, and actually give these young people work experience in a structured way, but not a management way. You know, they could work on one department one week, another, another. And, and the results have been really stunning for from a confidence point of view for the young people from a career pathways and and really what we were doing is is everything that the system the government education doesn't do at the moment rather than you're unemployed you need a qualification or a skill or you know to write your cv it's just one well, just give them jobs and actually help people develop their talents through working and giving them opportunities remove all the barriers and I, and I think that 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 the, the big thing that frustrates me is the lack of innovation mm. um, in the economy at the moment the need for innovation we know that SMEs are the fuel of economic growth of mm -hmm. um, the, the, the what we're fantastic about but but this Maslow's hierarchy you know this desperation leads me you know, rather forcefully would say that we're solving the wrong problems very well. The, you know, energy security is necessary but not sufficient. You know, food mm. security is necessary but not sufficient. We, we're going to be in a death spiral unless we can unleash innovation. And I, I don't mean you know, doing something 
better. I, I think this is about conceiving sustainability and employment and skills in an entirely different way, um, which has been the subject of our experimentation over the last decade or so. Mm. And that brings me very nicely onto something that the government is currently doing, because of course the uh, the cost of living crisis, the energy price um, crisis, that that this is something that is hugely on the agenda at the moment. And there's been some incredible packages announced by governments trying to um, alleviate the issues for both sort of individuals and business. But part of that strategy is trying to shore up the UK's energy security. And um, as part of that, we're hearing an awful lot about fracking, and we're hearing an awful lot about sort of more oil and gas licences for the North Sea and. Uh, I suppose trying to plug the short-term problem, the worry is, is that going to come at a cost to our long-term carbon goals? Is this going to sort of come at a compromise to net zero? That's sort of the the worry that a lot of uh, sort of people, particularly within the energy sector, and a lot of people concerned for the climate have at the moment. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on that, Robert? And are we missing a trick by not focusing on things like renewables and not focusing on things like better insulating the buildings that we already have? Yeah, it, I, I think it's a, it's a great point and and wicked question, you know, mm. wicked as in complex. And <laughs> I don't think we have a great track record. I don't, I don't mean the UK, I, I mean the world. Mm. You know, we don't have a great track record on climate. We don't have a great track record on social uh, issues. And th- you're absolutely right that there is a, there is a, danger that we we set targets and we totally miss the opportunities that are there to think about problems differently and not going to say anything on on fracking but in terms of um photovoltaic and pv or wind solar Mm. there's clearly huge opportunities to reduce fossil fuel dependencies and part of that is no doubt our capacity to um, have the right infrastructure. And that, that has got to be a, a big government play. But I think that there are, there are bottom-up as well as top-down innovations that are just there for the grabbing if mm. we could get out of the way of them. And let, let me give you an example. So the... The example would be that the pandemic has moved the world on uh, a few light years when it comes to remote working, distance working. I mm. I can speak to chief constables, chief executives anywhere in the world via the, the online tools that we're using now. We, we don't need to spend the time traveling. Um, and there are needs to get together, but those needs to physically be together have drastically reduced. Now, mm-hmm. there's an energy opportunity in that, and we can capitalize on it by looking at repurposing a lot of the carbon footprints that we've been indulging in with train and road and nice atriums in the city, and of course, all the economic infrastructure around that. We don't need to think about recasting ourselves back into the industrial revolution. You know, we're living in a knowledge society that has opportunities to rethink how we um, solve some of these problems. Now, this is a, you know, a radical thought, this is what we're about, but, but what about degrowth? What about looking at less growth as a sustainable form of 
coming to terms with some enormously impossible targets? Where are the sustainable opportunities that are not going to necessitate um, doing much more of the same things that have got us in the mess that we're into? So the, there are, there are and, and what that means is basically using what we've got in a better, smarter, cheaper way. And if you look at government agendas um, in terms of where the money might be for a lot of that, and I know this is going to be the consequence of the the, uh, the new government's um, energy caps, etc. Mm-hmm. But the the cost of public service is is enormous and rising massively. Uh, if we could reduce demand for health and the criminal justice service and all public services because we're actually working together in a smarter way. Um, you know, the figures, the business case on this are absolutely huge, but it doesn't involve more carbon. It doesn't, it just involves less in many ways rather than more. So less can be more is the message. Yeah. And it's a very important one to heed as well, isn't it? And there are a few things as well that, um, covering what we talked about the government could look to address. I mean, when we look at the lead times and we look at the bureaucracy needed to go and build something like an onshore wind farm, for instance, that's something that certainly I feel needs to be looked at. It's something that the former Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, spoke about sort of more than once. And um, as well as that, when we talk about sort of the need for sort of sort of bottom-up innovation as well, I think what we're seeing from governments is a lot of short-term, very intensive support programs. And there are some fantastic programs out there, but there doesn't seem to, beyond those programs, to be a legacy or a follow-up. There's no kind of long-term plan to sort of support innovations is there so i think something that certainly needs to be considered is the longer term maybe more soft touch support to kind of really nurture the innovations that this country has to really push us forward because in the context of what our targets are and the innovations that we need to kind of shore up energy security revolutionize what we do there's some incredible stuff out there and it just needs the uh, the right sort of support doesn't it yeah and and that again Absolutely support more innovation. Um, in terms of bottom-up, I think we need to be very careful to avoid the enormous bureaucracy that can come with government stimulation. Mm. Um, an example is uh, the research councils now um, have Innovate UK as part of their portfolio, and that organisation, where we work with them, can come with an inordinate amount of bureaucracy that is called innovation that isn't really, you know, give me the evidence that what you're going to do is going to work. Well, I don't know. This is an innovation. Mm. And and you can see pockets of where experimentation um, is, is a real engine room for wonderful solutions to complex problems. But we need to be careful that we, we, we don't get too carried away with the rhetoric of words like evidence-based when it comes to innovation. Mm. Um, and a lot of the processes, uh, we, we, I see this in the charity sector massively in the UK, as well as the business sector, that we're layering costs upon costs when it comes to the process that is behind um, setting innovation free. And I, I think if there was one 
call for you know government agenda it wouldn't be throwing more money at innovate it would be looking at uh, stuff it would be looking at the process of how you enable not just the initial but ongoing um, experimentation for smaller organizations in unproven areas and in doing so how you actually create more people in the uk back to our young leaders example so mm. in wales south in wales at the moment they are funding a basic income program for uh, 500 people who are coming out of care who are 18 years old who yeah there is evidence that those people would have a very high chance of uh, long-term unemployment etc there's nothing to say that that cohort is is not going to be with that funding possible of creating many micro businesses out of 500 people who are being funded for two years with um uh, i think it's 1600 don't quote me i'm guessing but that sort of level of monthly income so it is a basic income and it is an opportunity for to get out of those people's way and say well, what would you like to do in the world you've you've got a basic level of income how can we support the growth of micro enterprises that mm. might come out of that so you're killing two birds with one stone because it's demand reduction as well so um yes i think interesting points there. yeah and something that's kind of dawned on me here as well is that maybe part of the fact that a lot of support for innovation is short-termist maybe down to the way that we sort of look upon failure because i, I don't think that any government uh wants to sort of fail at anything does it and i think if you sort of instantly are going in with kind of a longer term plan for backing innovation it might seem counterintuitive to a government because innovation is ultimately trial and error isn't it and what governments don't want to associate themselves with is repeated failures but we need to kind of look upon failure differently don't we i think what we need to look at is that failure isn't terminal it's a temporary setback and through obviously failing and learning and using that to develop ultimately we are going to succeed in the longer run so is perhaps the way that we look at failings and setbacks maybe sort of setting us back from sort of more longer term prosperity yeah and, and i i think um it's, it's a brilliant point that the the internet came out of um a, a, a couple of initiatives one was um the u.s defense advanced research program darpa and darpa net and um this this was uh what people in venture capitalists might call moonshot innovation mm. um and um the uk has got an 800 million pound budget for something called aria advanced research and innovation agency which again is a we're just going to fail. We we no idea whether it's not you know designed to fail, but it it doesn't predicate a culture of this needs to be successful. It's we don't know. We're going to try some stuff, um, and I think that there is a there's a history of a, of a lot that that real innovation has got to come from you know, not knowing you've got the answer when you when you look at CERN. I went across to CERN um, a few weeks ago mm. um, and look at particle research there, at looking at actually exploring areas that we just know nothing about um, and we have to experiment and explore. 
to find some answers, then that isn't, you know, necessarily an evidence-based kind of thing. Uh, and as unpopular as it might be, and there is a, a great sort of truism, isn't it, that you know, in in the UK we we're we're ashamed of failure, mm. and in the West Coast of uh, America, around California, Silicon Valley, you know, we celebrate and we learn and we learn and we, you know, so the 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 idea of we have a lot to learn because we're not in a great position. So let's not pretend we know the answers. Let's mm. not pretend that there is a soundbite answer. Let's be honest and say, look, we don't know the answers, but how about we all work together to look at more innovative ways? And we're one of the most innovative nations on the planet. Mm. We just need to get out of the way, find people who want to experiment, to explore, get out of their way and, um, if you look at farming, if you look at you know post the common agricultural policy, um, tenant farmers, rural farming, the food supply chain, there is so much innovation there. But a lot of the farming community are lost because they they're, they're sort of in a, a adult child kind of dependency. That if you if you look at the money that was going into the farming uh, rural farming economy from the common agricultural policy, and you took all that money away uk farming doesn't make any profit none so you've kind of got a dependency built up from the government rather than mm. an interdependency and it's the interdependency of you know knowing that both left and right halves can help one another that we we need to kindle because innovation is an inherently collaborative endeavor it's not using the paradigm of i win you lose i take mm. it all um, we need to get a different operating model around innovation, and I really don't think that Innovate UK, in particular, is is great at innovating. I mean, it's a, probably a very unpopular thing to say, but um, evidence based doesn't create moonshot innovations. In certainly, in my experience, anyway. Exactly right. It's the stuff that hasn't been tried and tested, and it's obviously an opportunity to try trial and error, isn't it? So, like I say, let's see exactly what approach we do take to innovation under this particular new government that we uh, that we have. It's not been in office for very long, um, and as we start to kind of see the situation unfolding on what it's looking to target, um, what exactly um, are you sort of hoping? to see from this new set of ministers, Robert? I mean, we've talked about what the ideal approach to innovation should be, but what do you think the reality is going to be maybe sort of 12 months from now on that uh, on that respect? Oh, who, who knows? I mean, even even a guess at that. Um, I, I, could, I could only hope realistically that we, on both sides of the house, that we focus a little less on sensation and arguing and bitching at one another and just just focus on our jobs of stability and um, carrying out the, the awesome duties that we all have um, in moving forward. And I think that if there was a wish for anything, it's just sitting on our hands and maybe holding our breath when it comes to scoring a soundbite um, in PMQs on Wednesday or something like that. Um, that that would be a very ambitious hope, uh, but I think good enough for where we are currently. Mm, certainly so, and I think it's just uh, for, for, for myself personally. I mean, I th- I th- it, it, it is counterintuitive when you're in a political party to sort of plan for the long term in a sense because. 
what you don't necessarily want to do is set your successors up who may be of another sort of political affiliation to succeed. And maybe, again, that's another sort of element to the uh, the short-termist approach that we uh, that we have. But for the good of the country, I suppose, we do need to look more long-term and we do need to look at sort of nurturing innovation sort of in a, maybe a different way than, uh, than we do currently. Yeah, I, I think another way of saying that and is that um, my mission is I'd love for future generations to live in a world that serves people and our planet before other interests. Mm. And, and long-termism would, would come if we were able to say, look, I know I'm up for election on this date or whatever, but actually the right solution for the people is this one. And I think that would breed long-termism, not just in mm. the house, but in the boardroom and in charities and in NGOs and civil societies. We say, look, I know um, this is my institution's first interest, but actually the right answer is this, even if that is the wrong answer in the very short term. And I think that's maybe throwing back the long-termism. In Actually, it's enlightened self-interest. You, mm. you, put, you put others first, um, then we could we could think differently. Mm. Food for thought, certainly for anybody tuning into this podcast, and let's see indeed how our ministers respond to uh, to this as well over the uh, the next uh, few months and indeed years. And uh, for your um, organisation as well, uh, Robert Ethos uh, VO Limited, um, if you could look ahead, sort of uh, twelve months from now, as business looks to navigate what is obviously a difficult period with inflationary pressures, um, what kind of milestones are you sort of eyeing up personally and is there anything that's on the horizon that you're looking to uh, to achieve in particular? Yeah, very modest really that I consider the last 15 years to be a total privilege. I would I'd like to the next 15 to to I'd like to be doing what I've done. Um mm. and we we I think we've finished the owner occupier of actually building and running these ourselves. I think that my uh, wish for the next 10 years would be to help other organizations and people do the sort of things that we've done because it's it's actually about sharing the love and I, I don't think that we are going to learn as much by having those uh, programs like young leaders totally within ethos I think mm. we should be helping other people other organizations do the innovation incubation that we've been doing so but my, my wish would be to carry on doing what I'm doing and help other large and small organisations do some of the stuff that we've done because it's fun, awesome, you learn so much. Um, so that, that would be my wish. Breeding collaboration, isn't it? And let's hope certainly that that does um, transpire well and uh, let's hope that it is executed to uh, to really, really positive effect. And I think actually, uh, Rob, um, as we sort of look at how the situation is developing, um, I would love to actually welcome you back onto the programme perhaps at some point in this next year just to maybe see how it's all sort of materialising for you because we've talked a lot about the value of collaboration today and hopefully there'll be some positive things to say about that in action. Wonderful. It would be my, my pleasure and privilege.
It would be fantastic uh, for me as well, welcoming you back on, Rob. Thoroughly enjoyed welcoming you onto the uh, the show today. And uh, for anybody tuning in who, um, you know, uh, is particularly uh, sort of impassioned by the issues that we have discussed today, um, you can leave a comment on this particular programme via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us. Or if you are the head of an organisation or a business of your own and you feel that you have your own story to share about your journey or a topical matter and issue, or even also what we've discussed today, uh, you too can also apply to be on our programme to share your perspective and that would be via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply as your best port of call there. Um, Rob, thanks ever so much for joining us on the show and uh, by all means do take care and do stay safe with all still going on yourself. Okay, thank you very much. Speak to you later. And to all tuning into this podcast, I do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed the interview on the show today. I've been your host, Scott Challoner, and it's been a privilege for me to welcome co-founder of Ethos VO Limited, Robert Pye, onto the programme alongside me. Until next time all, please do take care and goodbye, and we will see you all very soon.